Well, good morning. It is a blessing to be together this morning. We got to sing praises to our great God. We've gotten to pray the Psalms. I appreciate Jamie for doing that. It is always good to pray from the Psalms. And we got to remember the perfect sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the meal left for us to remember him every week. And now we get to have the word of God powerfully work in us and change us this week. So we have a great opportunity, if you'll be turning in your Bibles, to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 today, and that will be our text. We'll be there for the entirety of our lesson. We've had several of these conversations over the past year that what does that child look like? Because when a baby is born, we're often looking for the resemblance. He has his dad's eyes. He has his mom's nose. She has his mom's smi- her mom's smile. We are always looking for that, and I'm not sure exactly when that conversation stops, because people will still say to you into early adulthood, at least in my experience, that I see your parents in you. And that's a great thing for us to be able to, to think about. It's a wonderful way of seeing how a family goes together when you can see the family in that child as they grow. And we have a similar hope as Christians, because we want people to see Christ's resemblance in us. We want people to see us and say, he looks like Jesus Christ. And that's our theme verse for today, because Paul's goal for us, for Colossians, for all Christians, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that is our goal for today, so that we can grow in that goal. And our yearly theme here at Castleberry is growing in Christ. And growing in Christ can feel kind of like a mysterious goal sometimes. It can feel like something that is perfection that we're reaching for, and it's hard to know where to start. But our plan for this year is to make that goal plain for each of us. We need to learn where to start and what to do to be like him. But our theme this year will help us to use our place in the world and our place in the church from last year to grow in our Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is a word that's going to pop up several times in the sermon today, so be listening for that. So today we're going to see what Paul says about this. Paul has a wonderful section here in the first chapter of Colossians that will help us to see this. Because today, in the end of Colossians chapter 1, Paul is talking about how he views his ministry of the gospel. And now, sometimes we look at Paul and we look at him and we think of him as a super-Christian. I don't really think I can be like Paul. He's above my capabilities. He's above my reach. But what does Paul say to the Corinthians? Imitate me as I have imitated Christ. Right? He's not just talking to some people. He's not talking to preachers. He's not talking to elders. He's saying to all Christians, you can do this as I have done this following Christ. That's what he's telling us today, to imitate him. So we should look at the gospel and at Jesus and see an opportunity for ourselves to be involved and to grow in the image of Christ. So today we're going to work through our text backwards. We're going to read uh, verses 24 through 29. Our goal verse is verse 27. So we're going to look at verse 27, see our goal, and then see what Paul did to get us there. So let's read our text together, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. There Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you 
to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What a powerful passage. We could almost just read that five times and I sit down and just go about our day. But we have some things that we need to say about this today that will help us to look like Christ. So first, he makes known the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul in verse 27 is sharing with us something that we need to know. So what is the mystery? What needed to be made known that wasn't known before? Well, Christ in you the hope of glory. And so what does Christ in you mean? So to see that, Paul explains this for us in verses 15 through 23. So we're going to read verses 15 through 23, and afterwards we'll see the four parts of this that show us the story of Christ in you. So go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there are four parts of this text that we need to see of the story of the mystery of Jesus. First, Jesus is the creator He was there from the beginning. He is before all, and he had a part in bringing everything about. He, as creator, he has a rule over everything. Notice in this twice, it said that he is over heaven and earth. Jesus created it all and is over all. He is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. His creation is going to hear the message of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. Jesus is the Creator. And furthermore, His role as Creator gives Him authority. So He's the Creator, and He is the Ruler. That's our second. We see that Jesus is the firstborn, the image of God. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, and the fullness of God dwells in Him. This shows that he is preeminent. He is above and before all else. Jesus is the authority. 
In fact, it also says that there is no authority greater than him on the earth. All dominions and rulers and authorities are beneath him. He is the authority. And he is the head of the church and his authority over us as well as part of his rule. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the first over everything, the most important over everything, and more powerful over everything. But then there's a twist in this passage because the third part of the story is that he is rejected. Verse 21, it says that you were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Not only does it say that the creation was separated from the creator and ruler. We weren't just lost. We weren't just separated. We weren't just different. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind towards our creator and ruler. And we showed that by doing evil deeds in our lives. Paul doesn't mince words when he talks about sin, does he? When he's telling us our separation of God, he wants us to understand the dire situation that we are in. We were enemies of God, and we lived in sin. We were not with Christ, and we were lost. But remember, our goal today was supposed to be Christ in us. How can this be? How can it be Christ in us if we are separated? Well, thanks be to God, there's one more part of the story. And one more part of the story is that we are reconciled. In verses 20 and 22, he reconciled us through the blood of the cross. His death was given so that we might be brought back, that we might be changed, because that's what it shows in us. The effect of his reconciliation on us is transformation, that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach when before we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he has changed us from a people who could be the farthest distance from him as possible to a people that he wants to dwell in. Praise be to God for what he has done for us. He has been the ruler and creator over us that we rejected, and he chose to bring us back. That is Christ in you. That is the mystery that is proclaimed by Paul. And so for us, Christ in us has to be our goal. The riches of the glory is this mystery, that Christ can dwell in us. Because we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, we were separate from God. And I love what Paul says here. He doesn't say that we have to go dwell in Christ. We have to make this grand journey to come find him and redeem ourselves. No. Jesus acts first here. It's Christ living in me. Christ has come to make us whole with him again. This is the ultimate picture of mercy, isn't it? The perfect ruler, creator, decided he wanted the people who were hostile in mind towards him. The mystery of the glory of Jesus Christ is great. And he came to be in us. We typically think that we know our own flaws more than anyone. That I know how bad of a person I am and nobody else knows it more than I do. Well, that's not true. Jesus knows your flaws even more than you do. And even still, he came and chose to live in you through the blood of his cross. 
That's the mystery that has been given to us, that he is in us. So, what does it look like for Christ to live in us? Well, there's two parts to it. He lives in us perfectly, and he lives with us in progress. So first, perfectly, is through salvation. This is the reconciliation that we saw in verses 15 through 23, that Jesus came to us while we were hostile and made peace by the blood of his cross, that he is able to present us as holy and blameless through this process. He washed our sins away and has given us a place with him. This is the part, the blood of Jesus, that cannot be taken away from us. He has redeemed us and his presence is always there for us. So Christ is in us perfectly. But secondly, Christ is in us in progress. Because what's it say there in verse 23? If indeed, that's a big if, isn't it? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, we have to continue in the faith. Our character is a large reason we can see Christ in us, isn't it? But that's a struggle. Because we know the perfection that lies before us, that what we want to look like can feel unachievable. But that's our goal, that we grow in our resemblance, our Christ-likeness, that we can look like Him. We've seen ourselves fall short when we cling to the world too tightly, when we have our pride and our sins holding us back when we know we shouldn't have. So this is why we need to grow today in our Christ-likeness. We all know that there is more that we can do to look like Jesus, isn't there? We all know that Jesus is a worthy goal and that we need to grow in that Christ-like resemblance. And so the rest of the lesson today, Paul is going to help us to do that. And so what did Paul do to help the Colossians get to Christ in you? And those same things will help us to invite Christ to live in us. So, the first thing that we do to have Christ in us is we must suffer. Back in verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul was willing to suffer to bring about Christ in him and to help bring about Christ in the Colossians. So there's a dual purpose there, you see. But the suffering of Paul, he, there is no one more fitting to tell us about suffering than Paul, besides maybe Jesus himself. But remember all the things Paul had done to suffer for the uh, sake of Christ. He suffered, and he suffered quite a bit. So when he writes about suffering, he has a lot of authority that he comes from. Because this isn't just a person who feels sorry for himself. This isn't just a person who has perceived slights that he has felt in his life. This is a person who still has the scars on his back from the beatings he's been given, who has the injuries from the stonings, who has sunken ribs from going hungry, who has faced death countless times. This is a man who, when he has something to share about suffering, you drop everything and you listen because he has been there and he has done that. And Paul doesn't just say, I suffer for you, to the Colossians. What's he say in verse 24? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
Paul has an entirely different perspective on suffering than is easy for us to have today. The people today in our world who deny that God exists see suffering as the worst possible outcome of our lives. If this life is all we have, comfort and peace and happiness is everything. But in Christ, it's possible to find joy in suffering. But without Him, suffering is intolerable. But for the Christian, suffering is part of being like Christ. It's part of inviting Christ to be in us. Think about what the Christians said in Acts chapter 5 about suffering. Peter and the apostles had been preaching the gospel, and the Pharisees and Sadducees were angry that Christ was being proclaimed. And they ordered that the message stop. And they threw them in jail, they beat them, and they wanted to kill them when they heard that they were preaching in prison. And they beat them again in prison and ordered them to not preach the gospel as they let them go. And here is what they said. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus suffered for the body. We can see that by reading through the Gospels. We know that Jesus suffered for us and for his people. His people rejoice when they can suffer for his sake as a result. And suffering has a different tone for us because of Jesus and the hope he gives. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, we have to ask the question, why would I be happy to suffer? It's still something that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. Joy and suffering don't seem like they belong in the same sentence. Why do I have joy in suffering? Because that is Christ in me. That is why we can find joy in it. We are inviting Jesus into ourselves that we can show the resemblance of Christ-likeness in us. Suffering for others is a sign that Christ is in me, and suffering for others can help Christ be in them. He suffered from the moment he was a baby all the way through his entire life on this earth. Jesus was a sufferer. He put up with rejection. He dealt with the failures of his followers. He watched them leave him. Why did he suffer that? He suffered that for his followers. He did that for us. And so when we suffer for Christ, we can do it for his sake and for the sake of each other. That's why we can find joy in suffering. It brings us closer to Christ in me. So we have to stop for a moment and ask ourselves a question. Are we willing to suffer for each other? And so go with me here with a thought experiment. So ask ourselves a series of questions. And we can consider our willingness to suffer. Can we truthfully say, yes, I am willing to suffer for others if we won't make every effort to come together with the saints? Can we truthfully say, yes, I'm willing to suffer for others if we won't try to encourage others when they are weak in the faith or help them as they are struggling? Can we truthfully say, yes, I am willing to suffer for others if we aren't willing to love them to patiently endure them when they are hard against us, and to quickly forgive them even when they offend and sin against us. You see, the willingness to suffer doesn't begin when the whips are meeting your back. 
the willingness to suffer begins in a far simpler place. Do we consider our brethren a source of great joy and pride for us to give anything for? That's where we have to start. And we show that in our actions. We have a great relationship together given to us by God. We have to do the little things like be here for each other if we're going to be there for each other when sufferings happen. When the goal of Christ in me is such a great goal, we should be willing to do anything to bring that goal about. So, be willing to suffer for the sake of your Christ-likeness and each other's Christ-likeness. But Paul has more to say than just suffer for each other. There is another part that we can see that we do. And that is we must be servants of the gospel. Verses 25, 28, and 29. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That is Christ in you, the mystery that he revealed. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, in this, he calls himself a minister. He called himself a minister in verse 23, and he does it again in verse 25. I think it helps us if we define that word. The Greek for that word is closer to servant, a lowly person, right? And I think that's helpful for us because we can see how Paul views himself as he uses the gospel. We often hear the word minister, and that's automatically we think, ooh, they're important, right? Let's elevate them. Let's put them higher up. We think of that person as a suit in front of everyone else who's in charge, who we all look up to. But the word minister is translated servant. Paul isn't talking about serving people like we normally use the word, though. Instead, he is serving the gospel. He is a lowly servant of the word of God. This shows how Paul views his relationship with the gospel and with Jesus. He's not a master of the gospel. He's not using the gospel for his own gain. He does not take the gospel lightly. He is a lowly servant of the gospel. So for us to have Christ in us, we have to be servants of the gospel. I mention this because we should not be elevating ourselves. We should not be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That there are some people more important than others. All of us are just simple servants of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't puff himself up with his abilities, which are likely greater than any of ours. He doesn't lift himself up and glorify himself. He calls himself a servant. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? But from verse, uh, Paul uh, shows us what he does to be a servant. What he does is a minister of the gospel, and that is he shares it. This is how we have Christ in us, that we share the gospel with those who are around us. The service we are in is according to the stewardship God has given him. This is yet another way of Paul's showing his place with the gospel. He is not master of the gospel. He is merely a caretaker on God's behalf of the gospel. He is there to serve and so the service we are in for the word is not our own. 
We see how uh, it is something that comes from God. We are working in His kingdom, sharing His gospel, serving His body. We are simple servants. So the only ownership that we can take is that we are invited to be a part of the body, that Christ has come to be in us. And so as a result, we take care of the work that we have in front of us. And Paul does that in verse 28 by warning and teaching everyone. This helps us to see what kind of message was being given through God's wisdom, by the way, is how he says it. There is positive teaching and there are warnings of what not to do. But none of this is possible without the wisdom of God. Without the wisdom of God informing the message, Paul is just a man sharing something that will not last. But when the wisdom of God is what we are serving, it has lasting impact for all of us. And if we were ever tempted to make the gospel serve us, instead of us serving the gospel, the wisdom of God will abandon us in that moment. God's word is ours to protect. We are servants of it. We are there to help share it with those who need it which is all of us, by the way, and all of us outside these walls. It's so important for us to know our place in service to the Word of God that we can truly work on its behalf instead of our own so that Christ can be in us and we can grow in our Christ-likeness. And then finally, in verse 29, as part of this section, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul shows us that serving the gospel is hard work. It's not something that you can take flippantly. It's not something that is done lightly. It's not something that is easy. Paul toiled and worked and struggled with all the energy that God provided him to do so. So we need to remember, if our lives are starting to feel a little easy, we've got a little bit of free time on our hands, that maybe we need to be toiling in the gospel. We need to be sharing it with the people we know and love and the people who need it around us, reminding them of the great mystery of Jesus Christ in you. And serving the gospel so that Christ is growing in us is going to take that amount of work. But God, thanks be to God, He provides the energy we need because He can powerfully work through His gospel in us. The gospel can thrive when we are willing to be servants, concerned for its good. We have to be workers that give our time, our energy, so that others may see the benefit of Christ in them as well. Again, Paul suffered so that he might grow in Christ and others might grow in Christ. Paul shared the gospel so that he might grow in Christ and others might grow in Christ. Our growth impacts so many people. But it is really difficult to serve the gospel. It is a high calling to do this, to have Christ in us in this way. And we have to rely on the strength of God to do it. And all of this is so important to Paul that he repeats it again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Read with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle, how great a suffering I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul starts over again. Suffering and 
sharing the gospel so that Christ in you may be proclaimed. Paul wants us to get this. In fact, he even adds in that they might be knit together in love, that there is a closeness that is a result of Christ in you. So he shares the wisdom and knowledge of Christ with us so that we may know him and we may have Christ growing in us. So all of us need to share a goal today that we want more than anything for Christ to be in us. But you may remember in verse 27, we still had one more part, that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is how Paul phrases our goal. In verse 27, he finishes, he uh, completes the goal for us, the result of the goal, that Christ in us is our hope, our hope of something greater than we have today. Christ living in us is our hope. And dwelling in us gives us confidence in the resurrection. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8 and verse 10. He says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ in us is our hope of life when we only had death. That's why we work to resemble him in our Christ-likeness, because there is something greater than today and now. There is something that we can hope in. The salvation that Jesus gave us and his dwelling in us fundamentally changes how we see the world and how we face death. We are a people changed by the blood of Jesus because he dwells in us. We are changed today, and our future is changed, and that we have the resurrection because of Jesus and him living in us. That we can be joined with Jesus one day in heaven, and that we have a greater share of the glory of Jesus every day as we take on more of his image. Christ in you. It's a great compliment when someone tells a child that they see their parents in them. We know that doesn't just mean appearance, especially as they get older. I see their personality. I see their demeanor. I see their character in you. But that's not our ultimate goal. We know that our parents are flawed and that reaching them is not the highest goal we can have. And so today we have a new goal, a greater goal for us. We want Christ in us. We want his image to fill us and change us. And we want to walk with him in his fullness. So maybe today you've been listening and you haven't had Christ change your life. You know that you are still losing the battle to sin every day. That you don't know how to overcome that struggle. Today there is a way. There is a way. You can give up the life you've led and start a new life with Jesus. You can be baptized into his name and take on his image. All you would need to do is come forward during the song we're about to stand and sing together. And maybe you haven't had the opportunity to repent of a sin that has held you back from looking like Jesus. That there has been something that has tarnished your Christ-likeness. Well, you can also come forward and make that known as we stand and as we sing together.